want to tell you about the Christmas Truce, a famous occurrence that took place early into the First World War, when soldiers fighting on both sides of the conflict observed unofficial ceasefires over Christmas in 1914. The Christmas Truce is very famous um, and has been one of the one of the standout features of historical retellings of trench warfare during the during the First World War. But it is firmly grounded in truth. I'll tell you this. It's been romanticised a little bit, but it definitely did happen. Troops fighting for Britain, France, Russia, Germany and Austria-Hungary. They put down their weapons. They climbed out of the trenches and they just kind of hung out together for a couple of days. They swapped gifts and souvenirs. They sang songs and maybe even played a bit of soccer here and there. Now, there's there's a lot to talk about when it comes to the Christmas truce, and uh, seeing as it is, according to old man Andy Williams, the most wonderful time of the year, I thought it was worth getting into here. Uh, alert listener Craig wrote in suggesting it as a topic all the way back in May, but i got to get those clicks, mate. Got to optimise that content output. Got to get those numbers up. So here we are with the episode in December instead, of course. Anyway, the First World War. It began in uh, in late July 1914. And I'll tell you this, everyone was jolly well looking forward to it. A good old scrap, haven't had one of them in a while, they're all saying. The common conception of the war as it began back in 1914 on both sides was that their brave boys would, would head out onto the battlefield, give the other side a thorough hiding, and they'd be back home in time for Christmas with the war done and dusted. Now, of course, we know over 100 years later that the First World War was a long-standing, drawn-out and horrific affair, and also it represented a massive turning point in the way that wars were fought. Because previously, military and, and weapons technology had put a pretty hard limit on just how many people you could kill in a war. Uh, people certainly tried, they did their best, but it was hard to kill hundreds of people with something like, I don't know, a breech-loading weapon. But now, into the 20th century, now that we've got machine guns, poison gas, and, and powerful artillery, it's a very different matter. And the First World War was, as a result, defined by trench warfare, where defensive emplacements were dug into the ground itself, and from which soldiers would attack for or defend, in some cases, literal inches of ground. And this came about, this was because of a perfect storm of various military factors, all unfortunately timed to result in trench warfare. For instance, the use of things like, as I say, the machine gun, this made open field pitched battles more or less suicidal for the attacking force, rather than line up neatly and, and you know, fire your one round at the opposing armies, you could just sit behind a machine gun emplacement and mow down anyone who was foolish enough to, ad to advance on your position. But while we have advanced as far as, you know, defensive machine gun emplacements, we're not at a point where tanks or planes are developed enough to punish people for sitting in one place behind a machine gun. And this is what we saw in the Second World War. Integrated, mechanised militaries, airborne bombers, these made mobile warfare trump static defences like trenches, and so trench warfare was obsoleted almost as quickly as it, as it emerged. Um, and obviously it's a very good thing that trench warfare didn't stick around. It's, it's good that it was obsoleted by mechanised warfare, air superiority, and also, you know, nukes, episode 197, get across it. I never, I never thought we'd be here pointing out the advantages of nuclear warfare, but, you know, there we go. But as I say, it is a good thing, certainly, that trench warfare didn't last because it was hell. It was horrific. It was indescribably awful for those who went through it. 
Mud and filth and disease, cramped quarters, machine guns and snipers and poison gas and constant artillery bombardments threatening to end your life at any moment. This was the reality faced by those fighting in places like the Western Front in Europe. It it was not the quick, decisive war that both sides were expecting. No one was was, was home in time for Christmas. Instead, it was a long and gruelling stalemate with troops digging in, stuck in these trenches. And as you can imagine, after a few months of this, soldiers on both sides, they had had a bloody gutful of it. In fact, by November, in some of the quieter regions of the Western Front, troops had just sort of stopped fighting. Realising the futility of the stalemate, they just hung out in their respective trenches or in some cases actually paid one another visits here and there. German troops would pop up over for a, for a catch-up, swap, swap some rations or a newspaper, or, uh, or British troops would, would head over to the enemy trenches to say hello, share some news, have a chat. Now, officers didn't like this, um, but that didn't stop the soldiers from doing it. Even after a period of fighting, there would often be unofficial ceasefires so troops could go and collect their fallen comrades and bury them without being peppered by machine gun or sniper fire. Now, these instances were a little more, uh, they were a little uncommon, they were more isolated. But as Christmas 1914 approached, this attitude of live and let live, it, uh, it intensified. In the days leading up to Christmas, uh, troops on either side of no man's land, they're, they're doing things like singing carols back and forth between one another. Uh, in many cases, the trenches were far enough away that the these enemy troops could call out to each other. And if there was a situation where there was a common language, for instance, there were many German troops who could speak English and there would be informal, unofficial communications between uh, between the troops in these trenches, um, which ultimately led to, on the 24th of December, an informal and unofficial ceasefire. Across the trenches of the Western Front, British, French and German troops popped their heads up, climbed out of their trenches into no man's land and went over to say hello to one another and wish each other the compliments of the season. And this led to some truly bizarre scenes across the battlefields of the First World War, where just weeks or even days ago, countless young men had senselessly lost their lives. These combatants now came together in harmony. They swapped presents, they gave each other souvenirs like hats or or buttons off their uniforms or cigars and cigarettes. Their weapons left behind and forgotten. And this truce, it continued into the 25th and in some cases even into the 26th. And as I say, resulted in some of the most amazing scenes you could imagine in a time of all-out total war. But rather than me describe these scenes to you, what I'm going to do now is defer to the words of those who were actually there at the time. People who recorded these notes in their diaries or wrote letters home or even wrote memoirs and recollections years after the war concluded. And we'll start off with a, uh, with a diary entry written by the British infantry captain Robert Miles, who had this to say. <clears throat> Friday, Christmas Day. We are having the most extraordinary Christmas Day imaginable. A sort of unarranged and quite unauthorised but perfectly understood and scrupulously observed truce exists between us and our friends in front. The funny thing is, it only seems to exist in this part of the battle line. On our right and left, we can hear them firing away as cheerfully as ever. The thing started last night, a bitter cold night with white frost, soon after dusk when the Germans started shouting Merry Christmas, Englishmen, to us. 
Of course, our fellows shouted back and presently large numbers of both sides had left their trenches unarmed and met in the debatable, shot-riddled no-man's land between the lines. Here, the agreement all on their own came to be made that we should not fire at each other until after midnight tonight. The men were all fraternising in the middle, we naturally did not allow them too close to our line, and swapped cigarettes and lies in the utmost good fellowship. Not a shot was fired all night. There's also the account of Henry Williamson, a 19-year-old British kid who was deployed to the front when he wrote home to his mum. Dear Mother, I am writing from the trenches. It is 11 o'clock in the morning. Beside me is a coke fire. Opposite me, a dugout wet with straw in it. The ground is sloppy in the actual trench, but frozen elsewhere. In my mouth is a pipe presented by the Princess Mary. In the pipe is tobacco. Of course, you say. But wait. In the pipe is German tobacco. Ha-ha, you say, from a prisoner or found in a captured trench. Oh dear no, from a German soldier. Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. Yesterday, the British and Germans met and shook hands in the ground between the trenches and exchanged souvenirs and shook hands. Yes, all day Christmas Day, and as I write, marvellous, isn't it? Or, and uh, this is definitely my, fav- my favourite story out of all of the ones that I came across here, um, this is taken from the recollections of a British comedian who served in the First World War, Captain Bruce Bairn's father, uh, while he was fighting in France. <clears throat> I wouldn't have missed that unique and weird Christmas day for anything. I spotted a German officer, some sort of lieutenant, I should think, and being a bit of a collector, I intimated to him that I had taken a fancy to some of his buttons. I brought out my wire clippers and, with a few deaf snips, removed a couple of his buttons and put them in my pocket. I then gave him two of mine in exchange. The last I saw was one of my machine gunners, who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civil life, cutting the unnaturally long hair of a docile Bosch, who was patiently kneeling on the ground whilst the automatic clippers crept up the back of his neck. So how about that? Cigarettes, buttons, and even haircuts were exchanged by these supposedly warring soldiers, all in the spirit of goodwill, despite the fact that the whole reason that they were there was ostensibly to kill one another. Now, there have been many famous stories about soccer matches breaking out uh, during the Christmas truce, and, and this has been very difficult to, uh, to properly verify. Um, Many historians take the position that this could have happened, but also that it might not have, or even potentially probably didn't happen. There's a famous picture that's bandied about uh, supposedly showing enemy troops playing soccer with each other. You might have seen it. It's it's the one with a clump of people in the middle of the frame all um, all jumping up to, to head the ball. But this was it was not taken during the Christmas truce. This was taken during Christmas 1915, not 1914, and it shows British troops playing amongst themselves. And on top of that, it wasn't even taken on the Western Front. It was it was it was taken in Greece. So there's not a huge amount of evidence that has that has survived to indicate that that soccer matches broke out. But many soldiers brought back home stories that involved them at least having a kickabout. In some cases, using things like tin cans. So. I don't know, there may not have been proper organised matches, just, you know, some of the boys having a bit of a muck around, which, as alert listeners will know, is very much in keeping with how soccer began as a sport. For more information, episode 135, The History of Football, Get Across It, containing a very 
balanced evaluation of the respective merits of various football codes. Can the bloody tigers, mate? In any case, the Christmas truce was indeed a very real thing that did take place. Most attention is focused on British, French and German troops on the Western Front, but there are less well-known stories of similar things taking place on the Eastern Front as well, between Russian and Austro-Hungarian troops. But while we know all about these truces these days, back then during the war, they weren't quite as well known initially um, because everyone involved on both sides, they censored all the stories of the truce from coming out in things like the newspapers. But then before long, in neutral nations like Italy and the United States, these stories were eventually published in the newspapers and they made their way back to the people of the belligerent nation. So so before too long, people did know or had some rough idea of, uh, of the fact that this truce had happened. However, the governments of all of these belligerent nations, they took a very dim view of all this peaceful fraternisation and firmly reminded their troops that such fraternisation amounted to treason. While lower level officers had, uh, had even taken part in the Christmas truce itself, the, um, the top brass, they made it clear that this was never to happen again. And it never did. Around Easter 1915, for instance, when German troops once again raised a flag of truce and attempted to emerge from their trenches for a bit of friendly fraternisation, the British just shot at them. And when Christmas came around in 1915, ironclad orders came down from senior command on both sides of the war, ordering raids and attacks throughout the Christmas period rather than allowing discipline to become lax in a much more festive atmosphere. There were a handful of small unofficial truces here and there, but broadly speaking, the Western Front in December 1915 was was as hostile a place as you can imagine, a far cry from the year before. And then by the next year, by 1916, after two and a half years of brutal, seemingly endless trench warfare, the troops involved in the fighting there, they, they were not particularly keen for a truce or for ceasefire or any fraternisation whatsoever. These poor blokes were embittered, and cynical after so long in the trenches watching their friends and comrades die in the mud beside them. They didn't want to go and celebrate or fraternise with the people who had killed them. And so as a result, the 1914 Christmas truce remains one of the most unusual and unique moments in the history of modern warfare. Various monuments have been built across what was the Western Front to commemorate the truce, and it has also been prominently featured in all sorts of popular media from across the decades, most famously perhaps the, uh, the Oscar-nominated and uh, highly fictionalised French film Joyeux Noël. Now, I don't, I don't generally make much of a secret about the fact that I'm not a huge fan of Christmas, and I'm even less of a fan of war, but all the same... The Christmas Truce is a heartwarming tale of military non-cooperation amongst those living through the gruelling experience of trench warfare. It's easy to look back at wars um, and throughout history and see how many people were killed and completely fail to consider the real human cost of these conflicts. I do, th- I do this all the time with the podcast. I, I'm very guilty of talking about grand conquerors and mighty war heroes as though as though their business, the business of death, isn't shocking and horrific and and barbaric. So when thinking about the Christmas truce, it's nice to have something to remind us of the humanity of those who fought in these wars. 
And it's also nice to think that, despite the horrors of trench warfare, there were moments like these that showed the better part of our nature as humans. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.